You're listening to the However Improbable Podcast, a Sherlock Holmes book club that narrates and discusses Arthur Conan Doyle's classic tales. We're breeding them in the order they occurred in the lives of the great detective and his good doctor. Holmes himself famously said that there's nothing new under the sun, but we're willing to give him a run for his money. I'm Sarah Kolb. And I'm Marissa Mercurio. This week, it's the second of our two discussions on the novella The Sign of Four. Last time, we laid out the plot, history, and a theoretical understanding of the story. We dove into Holmes as a metaphor for the well-being of London itself, the story's concern with the welfare of the British man, and what threads Doyle is pulling at with his imperial themes of drug use, Oscar Wilde references, and strange murders. You can check the discussion out yourself and listen to our narration in four parts by going back a few episodes. We'll be here. Now we're going to jump right into what we want to talk about today. We're not, we're not going to go over the plot or anything. Again, you can go listen to us talk about that, which is all the interpersonal stuff. Uh, Watson, mostly, and Mary mm-hmm. Morstan, and Watson and Mary, Watson and Holmes, and Holmes and Watson and Mary, <laughs> and Toby the dog, which I know we already talked about, but he's a very important dog. That's so true. So I just want to say, I think he's the best dog in the canon. Are there any other dogs in the canon? There's the one in The Hound of the Baskerville. The Hound. <laughs> okay, sure. So, you know, stiff competition. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, and we don't, I don't have to ask you, I guess, how you felt about this novella, because we no. talked about it last time. We both established that, it's not our favorite. That's extremely true. Do you feel, though, that, like, after having discussed it, do you feel any differently about it? So I think I learned a lot from hearing you break it down. And I know it's research that you've spent a lot of time in, in your graduate program and elsewhere thinking about sign through these lenses of like, particularly what Holmes is sort of acting as a symbol for. But I thought that was really fascinating. And I thinking about the novel as anti-imperialist, air quotes, in the way of, of supporting... Yeah, Joseph Conrad vibes, right? Like mild Joseph Conrad vibes. That really opened my eyes, I think, to what, to what it's doing functionally or why Doyle mm-hmm. might have written it. It, it just is not my favorite. The story doesn't land for me. It's weirdly racist in such like a cartoony way that I'm like, what is mm-hmm. even going on here? So I think that helped a lot for me. And hopefully our listeners feel that same way of, of getting like, okay, like I understand how this is fitting into like broader themes and things people were worried about and right. where Doyle's head was at probably when he was working on the story, I guess. Mm-hmm. I do think that it's the most rich of all the Holmes novellas and potentially the most rich of all the stories just because it, it's so long as well. So so much can fit in there. Mm-hmm. But it's still not good craft-wise. You know, it's still not an enjoyable read, but it is just doing a lot of interesting things. Like I said last time, I think there are other novels of this period that are doing similar things in a more compelling way. Or at least they're compelling when you're actually reading them and not having to peel back all the layers to make it compelling. Yeah, an interesting story to talk about for sure, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but not a pleasant. It felt like doing homework. Yes. It when and we were both did. like, we have to sit down and read this. Kept putting <laughs> and we're it putting it off a little bit. Um but I will say, and I alluded to this in the last episode, I was very surprised, I think, at what I pulled out of what's going on with Watson in the story, which is really why we like decided to de- devote some time to specifically talking about the interpersonal stuff in the story in a whole episode dedicated to it. Because Watson really took me, he, he surprised me. And I feel like I'm familiar enough with the canon that that doesn't happen all that often anymore. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this. So we should start with how 
our boys are yeah, let's doing. do a little, a little vibe check. Yeah. Um, what are the vibes? So what stood out to you? <laughs> I mean, it's bad. It's just, it's things are not going well. Everyone's The vibes depressed. are terrible. <laughs> things are real shitty in 221B. What did you take away, though, from Watson's character specifically in this context? Well, and this is the thing that surprised me, is that Holmes obviously is not very happy in the sign of four. Mm-hmm. And that you kind of know going in. And that's not unusual either. Neither is Watson. Watson's depressed. He is not happy. And he alludes to this a lot. Yeah. I, and, and that really took me, it really just like, I, I think I was texting you like, I think Watson is depressed right now, which. I completely agree with you. I oftentimes, mean, you know, because he is the narrator and he, he is focusing on Holmes and he's the vehicle by which we are experiencing what's going on with Holmes, he sort of takes a back seat in his own character development. And I think what I want to do in this episode is not let him vanish into his own narration and and shine the spotlight on him a little bit, which he's unhappy. Yeah, there's big moves from Watson in this story. So we do have to put him in the front seat. But you're you're totally right about saying that clearly Watson is very depressed. At the beginning of the story, uh, a couple little tidbits as just immediately first page are day drinking, Holmes berating his writing again complaining about the fact that Holmes is using drugs again, which he has routinely discouraged and is, I think, especially fed up with because it's been a series of multiple days in a row that yeah, Holmes is... like weeks is on end. Yeah. Weeks on end, exactly. Um, the way Holmes describes study is that it is, quote, tinged with romanticism. Ah, uh, yes. Watson argues with him and he says, but the romance was there. I could not tamper with the facts. Like, Holmes' focus is on facts and detail and process and Watson saying, but no, this is what I'm observing and those are the facts. As a point of conflict between them, I think it's really interesting. That is always such an interesting thing to me because we've talked about deduction as an art form before, which Holmes totally acknowledges, but then he's got these moments where he's like, no, it's stone-cold rationalism, and he's so self-contrained. He's a little bit of a hypocrite, and he's not consistent. Oh, he's a huge hypocrite. (laughs) When, how he applies this. Um, I, I think he just likes to complain frankly, about Watson's writing. True. And he likes to be right. So he's really at a tipping point, which he has to be in order for all of the other actions to follow, to unfold. Right. Yeah, he is very much at a crossroads in the sign of four. And he he makes some decisions that are going to change where his life is going. And if he was just kind of like, like we've seen him in the past, oh, everything's great. Holmes and I live together. We're solving crime. We're having a good time there would be no reason for the story to take a different trajectory. You're really right about that. Um, if he was my friend, I'd be like, my guy, I'm worried about you. Right. I, I might advise him to move out, in fact. And there yes. is a passage that I think really sums a lot of this up, if you'll allow me to read. Please do. He says, I was annoyed at this criticism of a work which had been specially designed to sp- to please him. This is in reference to A Study in Scarlet. Right. I confess, too, that I was irritated by the egotism which seemed to demand that every line of my pamphlet should be devoted to his own special doings. (laughs) More than once during the years I had lived with him in Baker Street, I had observed that a small vanity underlay my companion's quiet and didactic manner. I made no (laughs) remark, however, but sat nursing my wounded leg. I had a Giselle bullet through it some time before, and though it did not prevent me from walking, it ached wearily at every change of the weather. So we have the twin issues of Holmes's ego and Watson's old war wounds. Yeah. It's like they're both flaring up at the same time. 
Mm-hmm. But this really paints the picture of an unhappy roommate. He is over his sort of, like, starry-eyed admiration Mm -hmm. of Holmes that we saw earlier in these stories. He's fed up with it. I pulled out, I'm not going to read all of these out loud, but I pulled out a bunch of examples, basically, as I was reading the story of every time he was talking about his mood or how he's irritated. He limps impatiently around the room. He has considerable bitterness in his heart. Mm. At one point, he describes his future as bleak. Um, He says that he's nervous and depressed. His selfishness takes him by the soul. Wow, he's really, yeah, having a bad it's, time. I mean, these are words that he's using to describe himself in mm-hmm. the course of the story. And some of them are specific as he's, like, falling for Mary, and then Mary is potentially an heiress. and he, But, like, that, he has, like, very low self-confidence about that whole situation. So, um... Well, what I think is interesting here is because we run into this issue a lot of Conan Doyle saying, hey, this story takes place essentially immediately after... Uh, a study in Scarlet, and of course it doesn't. And in that paragraph I just read, he does mention that a couple of years have passed, but it also feels like there have been no other cases in between that time. And this is, of course, because he wrote Sign of Four right after he wrote A Study in Scarlet, and so had no other material to reference. Right, yeah. (laughs) So I think in Conan Doyle's mind, he is presenting Watson on the same trajectory that he was in in A Study in Scarlet, in which we do meet, when we meet him, he is very depressed. He yeah. is very low, having a hard time. Yeah. However, I think because of our chronology and the way that this should actually be read is almost 10 years after mm-hmm. they meet, is that it is a... Uh, a, a, a regression. Just like, yeah, it's kind of like a regression. It's a low point in a series of, you know, the time that they've been together. So it's not a continuous know phase of depression but something that Watson seems to go in and out and he seems to be in a particularly bad place in the story and we've seen some pretty high highs for where he's at and, and how oh, he's yeah. getting along with Holmes like I feel like we were in their red-headed sort of league golden years of when things were yes. so great and I mean things are like pretty bleak for I mean for really for both of them the allure of this case is not really solving the problem it's kind of like shoving the issues that are going on inside of Baker Street under a microscope and then introducing Mary Morstan into the middle of this cocktail right. of emotions that mm-hmm. is happening. And I do want to move on to Mary in a moment. The last yeah. thing I would say about this is that I think the thing that really tips us over the edge is Holmes's reading of Watson's dead brother. Oh God, we have to talk about this because it's so sad. It's a really rough moment. <laughs> yes. Explain how we get into this situation. I think it's sort of a famous... Um, scene and a fact about Watson. So we're learning something about his family history Mm -hmm. is that he has an older brother who was dead, who was a drinker, an alcoholic, and who gave Watson his pocket watch, um, Mm -hmm. famously sort of recreated and then mocked in BBC Mm -hmm. Sherlock with the cell phone thing, right? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I forgot about that. I forgot that that was... The translation yes. from 19th in, in century like to modern. Oh, that's the cell so phone funny. Into okay. the, like the bottom of the cell phone jack, and that means Damn. you're an alcoholic versus just R. like R. me. Stephen Moffat. <laughs> dropping my phone on the ground all the time, as people do anyway. <laughs> Not where I meant to go with this. No, so it's um, there. Watson has concerns about how Holmes is doing and Holmes's drug use, and they're kind of arguing about this. And he's, as you have talked about, is concerned about the degeneration of Holmes's physical well-being because he's mm-hmm. taking drugs and they get into this sort of like 
I, th- I think it comes from where Watson sort of like, well, deduce me, like prove it. And right. pulls out this pocket watch. And then Holmes. Very callously. Very tactlessly is like, mm-hmm. yeah, you have an old brother who's dead who had no money and it was a drinker. He just like trots all these facts out in front of right. Watson. And it really. And also your parents are dead and you have no other family. <laughs> You're so. alone in this world and <laughs> you're holding You're on welcome. to this memento <laughs> of someone who who you probably had a complicated relationship with. Sucks mm-hmm. to suck, Watson. So that's where we are when Mary Morstan enters the scene. <laughs> like literally, that's what happens when Mary walks in the door. <laughs> and thank God it did, because I don't know what they would have, like where that would have gone if she had not shown up with this distraction of a case. You and I have talked about how we like Barry before, but yeah. it's also true that she's not a very robust character. She's the probably, aside from Irene Adler, the most significant woman in the Holmes canon, mm-hmm. right? I think that's fair to say. In terms of, like, her impact on the plot and on yes. the characters, right. I think that's true. May- maybe Kitty Winter. Well, um, I think Mary has more influence and is probably yeah. wider known because she's the only one of Watson's supposed multiple wives that we know about, which we'll get into at a later <laughs> <Plush> date. <laughs> <laughs> but I-, I think it's also notable how nondescript she is as a character, and I think that's purposeful. Right. So we should maybe start with this description of Yeah. So this is how Watson's sort of first impressions of her is that um, she was a blonde young lady, small, dainty, well-gloved, and dressed in the most perfect taste. There was, however, a plainness and simplicity about her on costume, which bore with it a suggestion of limited means. So she's pretty, Mm -hmm. but not too pretty. She's well-dressed, but not wealthy. Like, she's very just average land (laughs) yeah and well watson goes on to say that the dress was a somber grayish beige untrimmed and unbraided and she wore a small turban of the same dull hue relieved only by suspicion of a white feather on the side her face had neither the regularity of feature nor beauty of complexion but her expression was sweet and amiable with large blue eyes that were singularly spiritual and sympathetic i think those last two lines are really important because that is just sort of like the like chef's kiss ideal of victorian womanhood is that she's singularly spiritual and sympathetic you know she's not like that pretty but it doesn't matter because she is just like so much of a woman according to the victorians she's like embodying all of these ideals of grace and tenderness and Mm -hmm. so i do think this is actually really important because i think mary's you know dullness words that you know Watson kind of uses here to describe her looks is really important because I think Mary represents this sort of crossroads, as you said, that Watson is at in this narrative, which is what Mary represents, which is middle class, upstanding Victorian life that Watson could have by becoming domestic, you know, marrying up, starting up his practice again versus his unconventional life. In this little bachelor pad that he has with Holmes. She's safe. She's pretty. She's sweet. Mm-hmm. She's caring. She's sympathetic. Like, I think my feelings on Mary, I'm a little bit of a Mary Morstan defender because I feel like she's not very popular and I just sort of have that impulse. Yeah. Um, well, I think. But also don't... Doyle does us yeah. no favors to make her popular. So I also understand why yes. people are like, okay, like why? Well, I think people a lot of times don't like her because she wedges her way between Holmes and Watson, which I yeah. think is just like unfair and like. You know, a little bit misogynistic, but yeah, uh, I, I think you're also right to say, like, well, she's no one's favorite either because no. she's yeah. really not interesting. And, like, 
if you know if I knew her as a person I probably would like her a lot because I'm sure mm-hmm. she's like a very sure. great friend and you know all of the, all of these like Watson paints a picture of hers a kind and caring person pleasant person but mm-hmm. as a plot point she really is introduced at the specific moment that she's introduced which is this a moment of what I would call like intense domestic tension between Holmes and Watson yes right and here she is with this puzzle for Holmes and the presence of this like be- pretty female ideal for Watson, you know, something for both of them to kind of worry about for the rest of the story. Um, that, that That's what her function is, you know, unfortunately, as a character. It's not like Doyle was like, let's just like contemplate deconstructing Victorian womanhood. No, not something. whatsoever. She's like literally the epitome <laughs> of it. Another line that I think is this is this is where we get three continents, Watson. Yes, yeah, very iconic line here. Very iconic. So Watson says, "In an experience of women, which extends over many nations and three separate continents, I have never looked upon a face which gave a clear promise of a refined and sensitive nature." He's really talking Mary up throughout this whole story. I mean, yeah. I think he really does acknowledge that she's pretty bland, but then he is really just like. She's pretty cool, right? She's pretty cool. Like, I could get into this. Like, this I'm into fine, this. right? Like, this is like, good. I'm going to marry nice. the first woman I see. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Kind of get me out of this apartment. Yeah. Literally, here's another option. I'm going to jump on this life raft. A lot of biz has been made of this line, the three continents line, but I just think it's funny to think of Watson just sort of like dalliancing his Sleeping way across India and Africa continents, yeah. when he's in the army. <laughs> it amuses me, and so that's how I choose to interpret it. Mm-hmm. Well, it always makes me think of that scene in Private Life. Yes. You know, where they have that fight, and he says, well, I, I can, he's like, I have a woman across the three continents to support me, you know? Yeah. Like, I'm not gay, I, I've got three continents of women. Three which, whole <laughs> continents of women. Which leads about. me into another line, Sarah, here. Oh, please. I love is, this one. I, this is, it, Sinophore is not a good novel, but it has its gems. Such as this one, where Watson says, What a very attractive woman, I exclaimed, turning to my companion. He had lit his pipe again and was leaning back with drooping eyelids. Is she? He said languidly. I did not observe. Very good. And then (laughs) Watson says, You really are an automaton, a calculating machine. There's something positively inhuman about you. So also not very nice. (laughs) Neither of them are being very nice. But no, you're right about the scenes like the great detective did not observe that this woman is like objectively attractive. Like, Hmm. mm -hmm. okay. Wonder why. Wonder why. Um, Also part, I mean, there is a funny moment in this, the scene where Mary, you know, sits down and tells her story and Watson like sort of makes to leave and Holmes asks him to stay as they sort of typically do. And I think, I don't remember exactly the line, but she sort of responds positively to this. Which I think if I was her, I'd be like, yeah, handsome doctor, please stay in the room with me and this coked up detective. (laughs) I think that'll make me feel better, too. (laughs) Right. Well, isn't, don't we also get incidents of uh, Watson's very famous backlit women in this story? I think so. I mean, I think there's definitely there's one like coming out of Pondicherry Lodge about Mm -hmm. halfway through. Um, I was sort of looking for that specifically with Mary and didn't notice it, but okay. there aren't a ton of women in this story in general. It's really just That's Mary and a, a housekeeper. And, the woman yeah. that Mary works for. Oh, true. Is yeah. probably the, the second most significant one. Forrester? Mrs. Cecil Forrester? Is that her name? That sounds... I think so. About right.
they have a couple nice moments. Yeah, you know yeah, that we can talk about. Um, but then we can they're move romance on from there because they're really not interesting, <laughs> for lack um, of a better word. It's very they're romance. There are some nice moments. You're right. Um, but what's funny about it is that Watson's really bad at it. Yeah, well, he's so self-conscious, like you said. Yeah, he has this intense preoccupation with the fact that Mary may be changing her social status, which I think yes, is, is rolling into, so like, what the story is getting at. Right. Well, because if she if she's, a, like, a class climber, then she's out of Watson's league. What was I, an army surgeon with a weak leg and a weaker banking account, that I should dare to think of such things? She was a unit, a factor, nothing more. If my future were black, it was better surely to face it like a man than to attempt to brain it by a mere will-o'-the-wisps of the imagination. Oh, in his feelings. Also, he's like yeah. trying, I think he's like trying to channel Holmes a little bit in that. She was a factor, nothing more, you know. Watson and Mary are in a cab together and they're leaving after they like find the body. Holmes is like, Watson, go take Mary home and come back and pick up Toby on the way. And then we're going to do some <clears throat> some crime solving. Um, So she's like crying and she's freaking out because she just saw some guy's dead body and she's like gotten them embroiled in this situation. But Watson's so preoccupied by the fact that he is afraid he cannot marry her that he doesn't like comfort her, even though she's crying. <laughs> Which I'm like, great work. Three <laughs> continents, Watson, like really... Smooth really talker. successful but um what he says is she was weak and helpless shaken in mind and nerve it was to take her at a disadvantage to obtrude love upon her at such a time worse still she was rich stop Watson. God. what a gentleman <laughs> oh. yeah on the other hand there is this very sweet moment when they're in Pondicherry. i think we're Watson is talking about how he and Mary are standing together and their hands just, like, reach out for each other. In their hour of trouble, our hands instinctively sought for each other. And he's, like, marveled about its sense. Um, and then the, the last, yeah, that, you can read that. That's a nice So, story. yeah, he, he says, nice so line. we stood hand in hand like two children and there was peace in our hearts for all the dark things that surrounded us. It's like a nice this a sweet little moment. Visual. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think that the end... Oh my god, where is this? Because I, oh, I really don't want to talk about their relationship anymore. Because no. I'm so there is by the, it. The, the one funny moment, I do think this is where... Like, again, Watson's just like bad at hitting on women. Um, he's like preoccupied and he is trying to tell her stories about being in Afghanistan, which I'm like, <laughs> why is this what you're you're using to try to like impress this girl but he like accidentally tells her a story about how he shoots a tiger cub out of a gun or something <laughs> like he mixes up the details and then she makes fun of it in the future which <laughs> kind of funny but also yeah. like, well, again he's not uh this is not like top watson showing no. not top 10 watson moments here <laughs> absolutely not so the end of the story after they get together it's just like it's so goofy <laughs> i think it's really, it's really goofy, goofy. He says, because I love you, Mary, as truly as a man ever loved a woman, because this treasure, these riches, sealed my lips. Now that they are gone, I can tell you how I love you. That is why I said, thank God. Then I say, thank God, too, she whispered, and as I drew her to my side, whoever had lost a treasure, I knew that night I had gained one. <laughs> oh, my God. Why? It's bad. <laughs> this is, it's like oh, stuff like schmaltz. this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's stuff like this where I'm like, yeah, no wonder it didn't sell. Yeah. You know? Well, yeah. and, like, Whoa. not that this is unusual for literature, but, of course, they've known each other for, like, two days. Right. No, like, two seconds. And they've been running around all over London, seeing dead bodies and 
you know, it's not like they're spending any quality time together. And literally, again, she's like freaking out because she saw this creepy dead body and he does not like tenderly embrace her. And I would be like, I have some problems with that. <laughs> I think you should have been nice to me in that situation because I'm upset if right. I was Mary. Just saying. Yeah. Just saying. So, I mean, I don't really want to talk about their relationship anymore at this point. We'll talk about it more in the future because she'll show up sort of. And we'll definitely talk about it by the time we get to, like, the final problem and the empty house. I want to revisit some of the thoughts we have in this episode when we get to that because it's such a, like, direct lineage between those stories. But that's it. <laughs> I, I don't remember what story where we kind of got the chronology wrong. Oh, but right. We'll have the to one we were going to re-air. Re-air it so it fits mm-hmm. in a little better when he's like, my wife is out of town visiting her mother who we learn in the story is dead. Um, sure. So fine <laughs> whatever mm-hmm. yeah yeah so we'll put that in a little bit more order but she yeah she's mentioned in passing in future stories and oh well, it'll be interesting to sort of pinpoint when exactly we think they get married oh yeah that will be interesting because they get engaged at the end of this because we have baskerville next at which point i think they're not married yet unless there's some direct line in the novel that i don't remember that says oh i am married to my wife now yeah, but i don't know that happened that. i don't think so yeah. either so yeah i we have presented Holmes, he and Watson are at, and where Mary and Watson are at. And now I want to talk about Watson's dilemma here at the crossroads yes. between the two. The, the Watson of it all. Which is a sign of 4-2, Watson Boogaloo. So, because Watson totally changes the dynamic. He changes the story. He makes a decision. Mm-hmm. And things are not going to be the same after this is done. Sign of Four is a really important story, narrative-wise, character-wise, and thematically. I keep saying this, but you know I don't like the Sign of Four, but I also do <laughs> think that it's the queerest of all the Sherlock Holmes texts because of this strain that Watson experiences, mm-hmm. where Holmes is very, very clearly aligned with the unconventional the queer in all of its definitions, whereas Mary is very much aligned with traditional, conventional Victorian, you know, bourgeois life. And Watson has to decide between the two. And he does. Yes, he does. Uh, yeah, that fundamentally changes things between him and Holmes mm-hmm. going forward. And that's going to be, it's going to be interesting to track that as it develops. But yeah, I'm trying to think of... um not to talk about the Richie Holmes, but there's that line in the first one, I think that really summarizes Watson's, I think, where he's at, which it's like, you're terrified of a life without the thrill of the macabre. Yes. Right? Is that, yes. that That's what it is. Well, we've talked about that movie being perhaps the closest to the sign of four of any other of the texts it might lift from. In terms of the interpersonal drama, it literally is the sign of four. It's a love triangle. Like Watson's being pulled between these two people, between these two ideas of what his future is going to look like, between these two ethoses of how he's going to approach moving through the world, and two people who represent very different things, one of which is comfortable and one of which is uncomfortable. Right. And he likes both of those things, but he's at a specific moment in his life where his relationship and his life with Holmes is becoming very strained, which pushes him over to, you know, say, like, I could do this thing with Mary, see how that goes. You know, like I mean, this is, maybe he, this is what I need. He has met a lot of other female clients over the course of the story and has not married any of them as far as we know. Um, as far as it's we know. something about 
this woman and this moment and where he's at right now that makes him want to sort of blow up this good thing that he has going with Holmes. Right, which is why I do think it's so intentional that Mary is presented as this ideal of a Victorian womanhood and is very conventional and very bland because Conan Doyle, for all of his, like, poor writing, I think, in this story very deftly (laughs) aligns Mary with the mundane and very deftly aligns Holmes with, you know, the excitement of uh, criminality but also like the sinister aspects of it the frustrating aspects of it so Watson is at once like thrilled by it but he's also realizing that maybe it's unsustainable mm-hmm. yeah I think that's a really good word and and I actually don't know if I've ever quite thought about it this way where particularly as he's like watching Holmes you know abuse his own physical well-being and and take i think for granted the thing that watson admires in him so much which is his incredible detective skills that you know that set him apart from other people and make him so special and so magical and make him be able to do what he does i think watson's sort of seeing like if i can't get him to change his behavior i maybe have to change what I, how i'm connecting with this because he clearly tries to bring this up and it's not like they don't have a productive conversation about the drug we use and then they have this terrible conversation about Watson's dead brother. Yeah, um, and this, as we talked about in the last episode, this novella is so cyclical, too. Yeah. It's bookended by the same exact scene, essentially. Yeah. So it's literally Watson trying to escape that cycle. Yeah. And I, I do think it's important, too, to point out that all the sort of theoretical building that we did in the last episode is still really important to this episode that we're talking about because all those things that Holmes represents in that episode is kind of what Watson is trying to get away from. Mm -hmm. He's very attracted Mm -hmm. to those things, but he's also, as we said, starting to feel the strain of it. Um, Yeah. So attracted to sort of alternate ways of living and also just the the threat of degeneracy for a Mm catch-all for whatever that's going to mean in this context. Yeah, so he's like trying to figure out like which betwixt which those things he's gonna align himself because like he it is a very real struggle it's not just like i'm sick of this i want to get out but because he clearly cares for Holmes, he likes his life here and there's a really i think one of my favorite moments in the story is when watson uh in his narrative says that i've coursed many creatures in my countries during my checkered career but never did sport give me such wild thrill as this mad flying manhunt down the thames he's really having a good time in this moment it's like the only scene where he's having a good time with so they're like literally chasing people in a boat (laughs) yes but this is you know the watson of it all it's like that that very famous line that holmes says to watson about you know having that shared love for all the strange things in the world, you know, outside conventionality. It's just at a breaking point. This moment a little bit later on, um, I think it's, I don't quite remember when it happens, but it's after they discover the murderer and he and Watson are about to do a bunch of investigation. Holmes, I think, is saying, "You." I think it's when he says, go deliver Mary and get the dog and come back. And he, he does like sort of check in to see where Watson's at with this, which I think is interesting. But he asks and he says, I will wait for you here if you will drive out again, or perhaps you're too tired. Also maybe alluding to to Watson's injury, which comes up a couple of different times in the story. He limps at one point. Um, and Watson says, I don't think I could rest until I know more of this fantastic business. I have seen something of the rough side of life, but I give you my word that this quick succession of strange surprises tonight has shaken my nerve completely. I should like, however, to see this matter through with you now that I have gone so far. 
Um, maybe Holmes is like picking up a little bit on the vibes because he does ask the question of like, do you want to continue this? And Watson right. says yes. And I, I think um, that is confirmed by the fact of Holmes's reaction to Watson's engagement at the end where it's not unexpected. No. When I think of some of these really iconic scenes between them, I often think mm-hmm. about this one. Right. Not positively, it does not make me feel happy, but it's it's uh, iconic in summarizing parts of mm-hmm. where the relationship is at at times. Right. So, like, Holmes gives this dismal groan and says that I really cannot congratulate you uh, to Watson. and Because yeah. he knows, you know, what this symbolizes, this loss. Yeah. Um, I mean, he sort of covers it in, like, oh, you're not going to be as, like, rational and uh, logical as I want you to be. But, of course, that was never Watson's role. Yeah, no. Watson is tinged with romanticism. Exactly. As Holmes himself says about him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if from Holmes's perspective, if, like, is this a surprise or was he sort of waiting mm-hmm. for this to happen? And sometimes I think um, adaptations sort of poke fun at Holmes being like, oh, another female client, what, you're just going to go and marry her again or whatever. That's a little bit of a trope, but... I think that makes me a little bit sad to think that Holmes is sort of like, well, this, you know, we have this good thing going, this friendship, this partnership, and it's temporary. And I'm sitting here waiting for Watson to think it's not worth it. And then eventually, at this moment, to Holmes, I think that is what Watson does. Mm -hmm. Well, he does say before he says, I can't congratulate you. He says, I feared as much. Yeah. You know, so he he does sense it. Which I'm sure he, he noticed them, like holding hands and making eyes at each other or whatever mm-hmm. they were like, to. get a load of these two like, <laughs> 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 heterosexuals <laughs> terrible <laughs> uh, speaking of which i do uh, want to talk about baker street as uh, yeah on the as, like on queer notes. space yeah please because i think I mean, this is where we've been building towards this, this is sort of yeah like i mean i think this and uh watson's dilemma are the two major points of this episode that we want to talk about because I, I yes. think obviously they're very related. Baker Street is really the manifestation, like the physical manifestation of uh, all the homes side of mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. you know what Watson is like sifting through. And I, I think okay, well I'll start with this at least. Um, I can't remember if I've mentioned Barry McCrea before, but he has written an article called Homes at Home, which I highly recommend for anyone looking to. Uh, analyze more of like the domestic space and queerness in the home stories mm-hmm. and he talks about the fundamental queerness of 221b um in which he essentially says that the detective and doctor's rooms function as a quote queer symbolic space contra- that contrasts uh, genealogy and the rule of the family in britain mm. in 19th century britain specifically and then i really do see this this space as like the essential space in which Holmes formulates this, like, sort of alternate masculinity, this alternate queer masculinity, and that it's, you know, distinctly homosocial and it's distinctly bachelor. Right. You know, and, and McCree also, McCrea also says that uh, the Holmes-Watson relationship, quote, replaces the narrative trope of marriage, which we see crumble a little bit in the Sinophore, but we've seen mm-hmm. so extensively before the Sinophore in which we will see so extensively after the Sinophore. Yeah. Down, down the road. You know, all the things that we were talking about in the previous episode of Holmes, particularly as a connoisseur of crime, where he's collecting all these sort of unconventional aspects of his 
work and like the London Cosmopolis and like bringing it physically into his home, mm-hmm. which we've talked about so extensively before, including people actually like telling stories and, you know, physically putting them in his home is really that construction of that alternate domestic space. You know, mm-hmm. it is not the domestic space you imagine in a Victorian home right. in 19th no. century literature. It's just like very queer strange space and he's actively cultivating all the weirdness that he's encountering in the city and bringing it back home yeah you know he's like cherry picking everything yeah and it's interesting to think about you know this process of like covering his bedroom right in in paintings of famous criminals and (laughs) collecting these mementos of crime and sometimes murder weapons and sometimes things that were stolen you know bringing these paraphernalia of crime sort of mirrored by mm-hmm. some, like, behavior or something that is inherently criminal in this time period, there's something there, too. A homosocial relationships yes. were not, you know, what was acceptable and mm-hmm. sort of inherently becomes transgressive, and he is collecting things that are transgressive and potentially illegal. Yeah, and they're his domestic space, which I always yeah. think is in so important to reinforce, because yes. it's not like a work-life uh, separation. It's all the same thing, and mm-hmm. Watson also represents that. Yeah, and I think, I, we, I think we've talked about this before, but he collects Watson. Yes, over the course of the stories, in a lot he of does. ways. Mm-hmm. So this is not published anywhere. I haven't submitted this for publication anywhere, but I have thought extensively about the side of four before. Um, so these were some previous thoughts I had. Much has been made of 221B Baker Street, and rightfully so. It occupies a singular space in the imagination of readers in the Victorian canon, a location to which we collectively and expectantly return with nearly every Sherlock Holmes story. While a return to the home may account for a significant portion of 19th century literature, particularly after a disruptive foray into a criminal investigation at which gender is at stake, in the Sinophore, and indeed all of Holmes' stories, Baker Street represents something beyond the normative affirmation of a gendered status quo that usually, that such a turn usually signals. So when we return to the home in most 19th century literature, it's like a return to the status quo. It's a return to the domestic. It's like you go out into the spaces beyond the domestic and you do all your transgressive stuff out there and then you return to the domestic and you're like, okay, everything's back to normal. Um, so really, I think that like the familiar domestic space of the Victorian home in the sign of four problematizes the novel's politics instead of resolving them. So in the last episode, we talked a lot about how it seems that all of the issues are on the surface resolved, but really Tonga's body and the treasure and the Thames really, uh, you know, defangs that reading and suggests that these are lingering issues. And likewise, Returning to the domestic space in the sign of four is not alleviating any of, like, the transgressiveness or the queerness of the decadent movement that we encounter in the space of London throughout the story. It's, like, bringing them back home, and so we aren't returning to the status quo by returning to the, you know, what should be the traditional domestic space. We're further problematizing it. Echoed and reinforced by the fact that Holmes is behavior, which is not desirable at the start of the story, doesn't change. Yeah, it's literally exactly the same. Mm -hmm. (laughs) To further compound this, the loss of Watson to Holmes Mm -hmm. is such a turning point. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, like, really the the last kind of thing we wanted to talk about is, like, the significance of this novella, not only to, like, uh, the characters, but, like, what it does in the overall chronology and, like, the future implications that it has. 
Watson clearly feels he is pushed to such an extreme. And the only Mm -hmm. way that he can remove himself from essentially what is like redefining domesticity or a home life through a lens that he is realizing he cannot keep up or is afraid to keep up or maybe some combination of those things. Yeah. Like the only solution is is to get out. To leave. Right. That's so, yeah, that's such like, uh, you know, an incisive way to put it because I do think that like this story really ends up being in some ways all about domesticity. Mm. Like, or at least a significant chunk because obviously we talked about all those things in the previous episode because I I think like predominantly this is a novel about imperialism, but I think that if you're talking more on an interpersonal level, it's about domesticity. Yeah. And about a singular, like a single man's position in like what is going to be his domestic space and what he wants Mm -hmm. his domestic space to look like. So... It's and he makes a, a conservative yeah. decision. He does. And I, I think what's interesting, too, is, like, you were mentioning how much of Holmes, how much of this is Holmes realizing throughout the story. And he's got these mm-hmm. little, like, comedic asides uh, that I think uh, clarify the fact that he does sort of understand what's going on. Um, like, there's one moment towards the end of the novel where he says, Watson, you have never yet recognized my merits as a housekeeper. <laughs> um, and then he gives this, like, you know, he has this... He, a delightful evening where he talks on all these different topics and like oh, is an yeah. excellent host you know he talks about medieval pottery and started various violins and buddhism and warships and all kinds of different things um and he makes a point to have like to be in good humor you know mm-hmm. um so I, I think it does sort of suggest that he he knows what's going on here yeah and watson i think is interpreting it as home sort of distracting himself because He's not just going to brood and wait for mm-hmm. news or a, ca- a crack in the case. But, like, on Holmes's side, it's, I wonder what he's trying to do in that moment mm-hmm. for Watson mm-hmm. or at Watson or about Watson. Well, everything is so um, performative, too, because, like, we start yeah. the novel with what Watson literally calls a performance. Yes, of him, of Holmes injecting himself. Shooting up, with drugs. yes. Um, not a good enough reason to use the word penetration, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> this, <And> yet- <laughs> this scene that occurs... Again, reinforcing this sort of, like, queer... Again, happening inside of Baker Street. Watson wa- is watching him it's do this. It's just, like, the this... most, like, voyeuristic, like, queer yeah, that's masturbatory the scene in Victorian literature. And I'm like, there's no, like, actual <laughs> reason to have this. <laughs> no! There's, like, is so many other ways to depict that Holmes is doing drugs and Watson's worried about it. And yet... <laughs> and yet, here we are... So I, I think all this is to say that, like, Watson's absence from Baker Street at the end of this novel is, like, a seismic shift Yeah. to Holmes's, to Holmes as a character, to their relationship, to the formation of this domestic space. Um, I, I think we have to remember that Baker Street and the living spaces in Baker Street were constructed through his relationship with Watson. Like, Holmes and Watson move in together. It's not that Holmes lived there and then... Watson moved in. It's like this was constructed around that relationship, around that partnership. Uh, and so we are treading into unknown territory after this. Yeah, it is. It's inherently the dynamic they've had is is going to crumble. And I do, I said this before and I'm going to repeat myself, but I do feel like Watson takes stock of where things are at and how miserable he has been, is offered this convenient opportunity with this very nice woman who here she is and chooses to sort of blow up the way his life has been going and totally change track to go in a different direction. And um, I don't think he, like, stops worrying about Holmes or is, like, thinking, but he... Well, their friendship is still intact. Yeah, 
and yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's going to change. It's going to be mm-hmm. quite different going forward. But I don't think he is thinking. I'm I'm extrapolating here, but he's mm-hmm. thinking of Holmes, understanding why he's making his decision, and not that Holmes is like relying on him the way you would rely on a domestic partner. Right. Does that make sense? Like he's Watson, like Watson is not thinking about the implications. He's of like, his oh, we're move. you know, like we're friends and we're roommates. Holmes will be fine. And Holmes, of course, would never say this, but it's really going to shake up the way he's been operating and living mm-hmm. his life and doing his work and all. Right, of which is why I'm so excited. Again, like when, whenever we hit these stories, we're like, oh, chronology was such a good idea to do. Yeah. You know, I get really excited <laughs> about it because I think you are going to see the ripple effects of everything that happened in the sign of four over yeah. the course of the next like several stories all the way through final problem, empty house, even after that. You know, because most of the time, the way that you read the story is right after a study in Scarlet, and then you go, like, read Skittle, Bohemia, and all mm-hmm. the short stories afterwards. But having so many short stories in between those two things has really made, I think, it's made it so much sadder. Yes, for it's made me. it so much sadder. Um, I'm sad for Holmes, I'm sad for Watson, I'm sad that things are so dysfunctional between them. Especially when we were, we were so good yeah. not that long ago. Yeah. Like, a couple months ago when we were recording stuff, we were like, oh, this is, like, the high point of their friendship. It sucks. Mm-hmm. It does suck. And I also would love to plug our episode with uh, Rosie mm. Piercy yeah. on um, My Dearest Holmes because this is where she starts to intervene a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah. Does this sort um, of, like, alternate telling of these events. Yeah. yeah. So go back and listen to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially if you're, like, want to get more into the queer stuff. Cause yeah. That's yeah, I mean, <laughs> and to, like, really, I think one interpretation of what Watson's struggle, you and I have talked about this personally, I'm mm-hmm. going to come out and say it on the podcast, but one, I think one interpretation of this tension in it, he, that's going on inside of him in this decision is this, like, tension of bisexuality, right? Mm-hmm. Of, like, you were presented what is comfortable and what is uncomfortable, what is heteronormative mm-hmm. and what is homosexual, and what do you do with that? And how do you navigate right. that in the world? Um, yes, really quite literal in this case I yeah think, i mean i him, think it's so but... easy to map that reading onto onto this narrative and yeah. i don't think it's a coincidence i don't think that conan doyle obviously was intending that in by any stretch of the imagination but i no, do think the that face he's clearly <laughs> right yeah, really um. um but he is very clearly presenting watson between like a choice between queer unconventionality and traditional domesticity yes and how else are you supposed to read that yeah I think Are thinking of, of like, where Watson ends up and, you know, because he kind of tries to have both for a while. Mm-hmm. That's where we're seeing. Oh, yeah. And that's the sort of, like, that middle ground of, like, in-between tension space that he's going to live in for the next couple of years, which also very interesting. He he doesn't want to give either of these things up. He wants to have his cake and eat it, too, as they say, and wants to be married to Mary, but also do investigate things with Holmes. And we'll see where that, that goes for him. final thoughts about the sign of four i i don't know i feel like we've covered it i also feel like every time i think about it unfortunately i uncover a new layer of of my feelings and i i mean again i was really just surprised unfortunately because i don't want to keep reading it and yet it continues to be interesting yeah i was really surprised at the depths of despair i think watson starts the story at i feel the sign of four is his sort of trying to justify to himself that he's making the right choice. Mm-hmm. At times, I think it feels a little desperate, which is why some of this like romance stuff feels so hokey because you're it's just like, so what? Hokey. Yeah, are you doing? Mm-hmm. 
But I think if you're looking at it that way, you're like, okay, like you're trying to tell yourself this is going to work out and it's going to be great and everything's going to be fine. And then, of course, you have that final scene of Holmes going, and me, the cocaine bottle. And uh, right. Everything Very is good not scene. Yeah. going to be fine. Yeah. I mean, like, it's Watson, not going to be the same. Watson, the serial romancer person falling in love on the subway. <laughs> and then never seeing that person again <laughs> strikes again. Yeah, but this time he has proposed, so exactly. he has this time to live he with that through. Yeah. at least for a couple of years. Well, yeah. I'm excited to not think about this novella yeah. or read it for at least a decade. Thank God. So no kidding. That's what I'm thinking. I mean, I do obviously want to Check. return to it in terms of like future stories that we are covering, but I'm yeah. excited no, if people to think not we're read done it. bringing this up all the time. No, we're not. It's it's still gonna come up. Well, it's such a hugely important story. It's incredibly pivotal. We to the best novella, and I'm so excited about that because yeah. we are doing this ridiculous one, and we're following it up with the Hound of the Baskerville. I know, I can't wait. Just, like, get knee-deep in the gothic. Evil entomologists. Weird. Glowing phosphorescent married dogs. siblings. You know. <laughs> and good old Henry Baskerville himself. Henry Baskerville, the American dreamboat. If I do Very say exciting. so. Myself. Okay, do we want to talk about some adaptations of this line of four really quickly? This is called, the story is called The Treasure of Agra in the Soviet Homes adaptation. Um, there's a play based on the sign of four called The Crucifer of Blood, written in 1978. I don't know why mm. it's called that. Um, which was then turned into like a filmed play version in 1991 with mm. Charlton Heston playing Holmes. We alluded to BBC Sherlock earlier, but the story The Sign of Three is their episode about Watson's wedding and the Mary character, which plot twists in lots of different directions that are not mm-hmm. related to the sign of four is played by Amanda Abington in that show. Mm-hmm. Mary, of course, appears in the Burke Cool's radio adaptations. Uh, Brian Blessed plays Jonathan Small cool. in those adaptations, which I thought was a neat little fact. And then, of course, we have to briefly mention Granada. Mm-hmm. Mary is played by an actress named Jenny Seagrove, and the plot is substantially different. Up until the end, it's right on track, but Watson and Mary do not get engaged, and they never get married. Which, those were choices that Granada Holmes chose to make. Maybe save the day. Part of it was Jeremy Brett's influence. I think, you know, at some point we'll want to do part two of our Granada episode and actually talk about this a little more in depth. Once we get to uh, Empty House. Yes. um, For spoiler reasons. But yeah, it removes that part of the story and then it's just sort Mm. of like a weird mystery. Yeah. (laughs) And of course. And then there is... The first Guy Ritchie movie, which, again, I do feel is pulling really heavily from Mm -hmm. the personal conflicts of the sign of four and Watson in this tension and being pulled towards Holmes and trying to hang on to what he feels with Mary and making that choice and where where is his heart and all of this stuff. Um, Mary is played quite wonderfully, in my opinion, by Kelly Riley in the Ritchie Holmes movies. And she also plays a substantial role in the second movie. uh, Which is about the wedding and she's really fun. And um, I think she has a lot more like pluck and energy to her in the way that they totally her, and i actually think it's great now i want to go watch that movie again it's been mm-hmm. 10 whole minutes since the last time i watched it <laughs> again it's not my favorite story so none of them are my favorite except for guy Ritchie. but you know say right. lovey you have some read-alikes or yeah, or I, however you want to pre- I, present yeah. these <laughs> i know i'm like really hedging uh, my bets here um 
Yeah, because I, I mean, there's not really any good read likes that I would actually want to, like, uh, recommend to anyone, because if I were being honest, I would say, like, Heart of Darkness, and I'm not recommending that to anyone. <laughs> no, we're not, like, telling people to read that. <laughs> no. So, what I do want to recommend are some, um, specifically anti-colonial texts. Master Jin by P. Jolly Clark. This is, like, a detective story, but also a mystery and, like, magical stuff, it's like early nineteen or early twentieth century Egypt. Like it's alternate really history, fun. sort of. It's alternate history. Yeah. Oh, they're so stuff. good. It's yeah, really I love fun. These novellas. P. Jolly Clark stuff. All pretty good. All oh, really good best. from what I've read. Yeah. Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno Garcia. I'm sure a lot of people have already heard about this, but again, uh specifically like a specifically anti colonial take on Gothic literature. Mm-hmm. And I I I think I would throw My Dearest Homes, which, again, we've talked about on the oh, podcast. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I, you know, if you're reading The Sign of Four and wanting to think more about um, what these queer themes look like or what that might be look like look like if it was really brought to the surface, Rosie's novel really does that. I think we're done with Thank The Sign God. of Four. <laughs> Congrats you to us. Yeah. See you again in the next 10 years. <laughs> you horrible, horrible novel. Okay. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for Doyle's fourth and final, and dare we say, best novella, The Hound of the Baskervilles. And thanks especially to our narrator for the story, Paula Brett. You can send your thoughts to howeverimprobablepod at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at improbablepod. Our website, howeverimprobablepodcast.com. You can find transcripts, the research behind the episode, and suggestions for further reading. We'll link, again, a lot of the research Marissa has done and these suggestions for books and, I don't know, like, tell us what you think about Guy Ritchie. (laughs) So we can just (laughs) talk about Guy Ritchie on Twitter, which is our favorite Twitter thing to do. I would like to know if you have a fairy, a, a favorite uh, version of Mary. Hmm. That's a good question. Yeah. Um, would love some thoughts there. I think she, mm-hmm. you know, people do, can do some interesting things with her and I have not read a ton of pastiche where she is a character, but I would also be interested to know if anyone has some recommendations there. Yeah, point is, if you're enjoying the show, if you like The Sign of Four, if you hate The Sign of Four, if you have <laughs> any opinions at all, if you want to send us pearls in the mail, Please write and review. Let us know. However, Improbable is created by Marissa McCurio and Sarah Culp. With apologies to Arthur Conan Doyle. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, dear listeners, believe us to be very sincerely yours. Bye.